Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. What a good day to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it, church? Um, We are going to be in Genesis 32, starting in verse 1 here in a uh, little while. We will be jumping into that. And for the most part, we're going to be in that text. I'm going to mention Genesis 28, and then I'm also going to mention Proverbs 3. That scripture you would probably be familiar with. But don't do any extra credit. Just stick with what I said first, Genesis 32. That way you can track on. Um, So we are in week four of our series called How To, and we've been looking at some of the most difficult conversations that we can have. And last week was uh, was a a very heavy message. I've known that uh, that people would wrestle with that, and I've had great dialogue since last week's message um, in regards to gossip, and that's what that was about. Everybody say gossip. Gossip, yeah. Nobody wanted to say that loud. That's just how gossip gets spread, isn't it? But uh, So we've talked about gossip, and now we're talking about something that is it's essential not only to really for Christians, but also non-Christians. And this idea of how to admit when you're wrong, and then just as important, how to right the wrong. So how do I say that I'm wrong? Another way of maybe communicating this is saying, how do I say I'm sorry? But if I'm honest, before we even get into our text, I want to uh, kind of lay a foundation a little bit. I've been waiting for about 30 years for, for one person to tell me that they're sorry. 30 years. That's a long, is that a long time, church? 30 years. And you'll never guess who this person is. Ralph Macchio. Do you know who Ralph Macchio is? Who's, who's Ralph Macchio? He's the Karate Kid. It was because of the Karate Kid and Ralph Macchio that not only have I been doing this for the last 30 years for absolutely no reason, but also it's the reason why I'm tainted by my family pictures is when I tied bandanas around my pant leg that had the rising sun on it. Ralph Macchio. I tell you, I've been holding on to that. That's bitterness. I feel a little bit better now that I'm kind of, you know, I'm letting it out. But the truth is, I'll never get that apology. And then there's another one. I was never really tainted by this, but I guarantee you some of you were. And if you were, you don't make it obvious by saying anything, okay? I, I've been waiting for, uh, for an apology on your behalf from Billy Ray Cyrus, right? Don't touch my heart, my, what is that? Right. I just don't think it understand. I'll be honest with you, Billy Ray, we don't understand, But yet, I've been waiting on an apology for that song because I think that song is atrocious. But something that's even more atrocious than that song, and like I said, I'm not trying to pick on you because I know some of you had mullets. But I know, it's true, a lot of mullets on this side. No, actually, it's this side. They didn't laugh at all. They're like, man, they've seen the pictures. But the, the thing about Billy Ray is he brought not only a bad song, he also brought the mullet. Now, you may, you know, I don't know, you may call it something different, like the Kentucky mud flap that Tennessee turned down. I mean, whatever you call it. I, I think the best thing and the most appropriate thing to refer to the mullet is the, is the achy, ba- achy, breaky, bad, mistakey. I think that is, that's the thing that matters most. I'm kind of shedding light on this, but... The reality is we're all waiting on somebody or maybe I'll turn that around. Somebody is waiting for us to step up to the plate and say, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. Somebody's waiting on us to do that, aren't we? Many of us have had things that have happened in our life, whether it's events from our our, our parents or our brothers or sisters, and yet we have this harbored bitterness in us and we just 
wish that somebody would say, I'm sorry, and take responsibility for that hurt. Is that true? There's something that happens, and I've got to get this guy's name right because I've never heard it before. Um, a, a guy by the name of Dr. Carlfred uh, Broderick, Carlfred, I'm gathering he's probably not from the United States, he said that there's something that happens in the psyche of an individual if there are, are events and people have afflicted us and they've damaged us and if we have conflict that has not been resolved. And there's usually one of four things that happens. The first thing that he kind of maps out is the hedgehog principle. And he says the hedgehog principle is you've offended me but I don't confront you and you've never said you're sorry. So the hedgehog, what he does is he burrows his head in the ground and it creates distance in that relationship. This happens in marriage, this happens in friendships, this happens in family. And the hedgehog principle, we bury our head in the ground creating distance. And if you visualize this, if you have your head in the ground, you can't listen to other people because you're burying yourself in their circumstance. You're burying yourself there. So not only do we have the hedgehog, by the way, I have going through this message and kind of been preparing for it. I am absolutely guilty of all four of these at different times with different people. And I think you'll probably find the same for yourself. So there's the hedgehog principle. Next we have the fox principle. By the way, the, the hedgehog, it, it, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make a, an overgeneralization here, but the, but the hedgehog principle more happens in ladies than it does men in, in that I think you would probably see consistent in your life. But the second one is the fox principle. The fox principle is this. You have offended me. You have not said you're sorry. So what I'm going to do, and the way that I'm going to handle this resentment, is I'm going to go run and hide. And I'm going to go run and hide, and I'm going to put myself in a hole. That way I can't be hurt anymore. All because the person who... who did the offending, has not stepped up to the plate and take responsibility and say, I'm sorry. Then we have the bear principle. The bear principle is this. You've offended me. I'm offended. Now I'm going to lash out at you. And a bear principle is, is the attacking principle. If we don't have someone who will step up to the plate and say, I'm sorry, or they admit that they're wrong. And then we have the next one. And this This is is recognized by someone, truthfully, this is recognized by someone's face. This principle, as Dr. Broderick says, is the hound dog principle. And usually you can see this on someone's face when they're going through something or if they've been offended or afflicted by someone else. And what this person does is they put all of that on themselves, which then creates distance in their relationship. It's the hound dog principle. That's why you can see it on their face. So these four different principles, and like I said, I, I was honest with you. I bet if, you were, if we were to sit down and have a cup of coffee, you would probably be able to say, you know what, I've had events in my life where I've done all four of those things at different times with different people. Is that true, church? And yet we know that there's consequences when we go through, and if we have, we know we're going to have conflict. Conflict is inevitable. It's a difficult conversation, and yet... If we do not go through and say, if, we've, if I've offended you, if I don't take responsibility and, and admit that wrong, and life is full of these opportunities, if we don't take that responsibility, one of these four principles is, is right in the middle of that relationship. And until one person has the courage, has the guts, has the strength, has the really just the, the mind of God in this, and says... 
I take responsibility, I've offended you, and tries to make it right again, that will rest right in the middle of your relationship. And it's damaging. Not that that is enough, but I I want to, uh, before we get into Genesis 32, there's some things I have to kind of catch up on. This scripture, if you've kind of grown up in church, maybe children's church, you've heard this passage before. And it it is uh, very applicable to the topic for today. But these are pretty much the events of a guy by the name of Jacob and a guy by the name of Esau. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. They were twin brothers. Esau was born first. Therefore, he was supposed to be getting, in that time, he was supposed to be the recipient of the birthright and also the blessing from his father. Now, Esau and Jacob were completely different. Esau, the scripture literally preceding this passage, says that he was hairy. So he's a hairy dude. He was also an outdoorsman. So almost like have this visual, he's like, if anyone watched TV in the 80s, we'll remember a guy by the name of Grizzly Adams, right? This is Esau. So Esau is like this outdoorsman, hairy, man's man kind of guy. And it also, knowing from the scriptures, he was favored, errantly, he was favored by his father. So we see some favoritism going on in their relationship. I'll tell you how that affects them here in just a little bit. But then also we have the other side of the spectrum. We have Jacob, the twin of Esau, the second born. He was not supposed to be the recipient of, of the birthright and blessing. He was, and like I said, the background of him is his life, he stayed around the tents is what we know about Jacob. When he was growing up, he stayed around the tents. He was favored by, guess what? His mother. He was, he was around the tents. His mother held close to him, and his mother favored him where the father favored Esau. Do you think that brings trouble into a family? And now, because we have this favoritism going on, and they are, they are very different individuals, there's strife. As a matter of fact, from the scriptures, we know that there was actually strife. They were like doing some MMA in utero. Like literally in their mother's womb, they were like wrestling. And, and I believe that to be true. I believe the, the, the word of God to, be the, to speak literally and saying they were literally having turmoil even in their mother's womb. Just a picture of how much hardship that they would have to go through years later. So they were different individuals. Well, there's two events that shape their relationship, even, even with their differences. The first thing that happened was Jacob had tricked his brother Esau into receiving his birthright. Now, you may think, what's a birthright? We live in America. There's really, it's really not relevant to us. In their culture, the recipient of a birthright would get double the inheritance of the rest of the children. The recipient of the birthright would be the person who is the spiritual leader and he's the one who has to handle the affairs of the rest of the family. It was a position of honor. People would look up to this individual. Well, there was one such day that that Esau, he was just somebody who didn't really think much about the, the honor of the birthright. And flippantly, he gives it away because his brother tricked him with some food, with some stew, literally. So he tricks him. And then Esau, he says, I'm just so hungry. And Jacob said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you something to eat if you give me your birthright. And then Esau makes this flippant decision. And he says, okay. So at this point, now Jacob and Esau are being separated. And through this deception, Jacob is now supposed to be, and he's, he's been given from Esau the birthright. 
to complicate things. Now we see the favoritism in the home come to the surface. Now there was the the birthright, and now here's the blessing. The blessing was supposed to be given down from father to the firstborn son. And all of the things of the birthright were supposed to be encapsulated. All of those things, that there was no holds bar. As soon as that blessing was given, everything in the birthright was sealed. So now there's more opposition. And now the, the mother conjures up a plan with Jacob to trick the father into receiving the blessing. Well, well how do you think Esau is going to handle this? Esau at first, had, he didn't think very highly of it until he lost it. And now the very thing, his, his brother was a deceiver and he had deceived him and even with the favoritism of the home worked against their relationship. And because of these events, Jacob is forced to leave because Esau had, had claimed publicly that he was going to kill his brother. So Jacob goes as far away as he possibly can to another family member by the name of Laban. And he goes 400 miles away. Okay, they didn't have cars, they didn't have F-150s. 400 miles on your feet or a camel is a long way. So he goes 400 miles. And the span of time of all of these events to what we're going to read in the passage spans 20 years. And you thought your family was messed up holding grudges. 20 years. We had to... We have to all come to an understanding as to why this, this chasm exists between the relationship. And the mother and father played an integral role. And I'm just going to say this. This has nothing to do with admitting that you're wrong unless you've done this and then you can try and right the wrong at home. If, if a mother, listen to me, if a mother holds too closely to a son in their development years, it is extremely detrimental to their son. Little boys are not supposed to be raised up as little girls. Even if you think they're cute and they're cuddly, little boys need to be raised to be boys. If they're coddled too long by their mother, you will not do anything to favor and help them. You will actually inflict danger upon them and they will not understand who they are supposed to be in Christ and the, and the relationship and the responsibility they're supposed to have in the home. And they will have gender confusion. This happens and this happens in our culture even more so than what we see it in theirs. But it's absolutely clear. Read, read the two chapters prior to our text today and you'll see how this really takes shape. That Jacob was so favored by his mother that he stayed around the tents and mother got comfortable with him. And now he, he, he looked at his brother who was the outdoorsman and in that time that's what men did. They, they went and they were the, the hunter-gatherer and then bring it back. But because of the strife that was brought on with the favoritism, it just brought a deeper wedge in their relationship. Genesis 32, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 12 at first. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Machanim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. That's an important word. Your servant 
another important word, says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I'm, I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. What, what's happening here is Jacob is wanting to come back home. He has left his family member, Laban, and he says, I'm coming back home. So he's making a plan with his people. Continuing in verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, If Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me, and also the brothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So Jacob is, he's coming back home. And we see from this text, and I love this, this is not one of the points from this text, there are six points, this is not one of them, but I love, I love what's illustrated here. Esau finds out that his brother is coming, and what does Esau do? He meets him halfway. That Jacob is already on his way and he sends people ahead of him. And now Esau, in response to that, he's starting to meet Jacob halfway. First thing that I would hope that we would see this morning. As Jacob also went on his way and it says, the angels of God met him. For you and I this morning, if you you even get to the place where you're wondering and you're thinking, how do I... How, how, do I, how do I do this? I know I have to have this difficult conversation. I know that I need to take some responsibility for the things that I have done wrong. The very first thing you need to do is place yourself under God's care. Place yourself under God's care. Just say, God, I don't know exactly how this is going to work out, but I know that if, if I am in your care, I know that it's going to work out the exact way that you want it to. And in essence... It's a way of saying, God, I don't want to mess this up. Things are not right between between that person and myself. And the only way that I can make it right is if I place myself in your care because I know that Proverbs 3 says that I need to trust with all my heart and lean on, on my own understanding and all my ways acknowledge Him. And it says in that scripture that what? He will make our paths straight. So if we place ourselves under God's care, We just place ourselves under God's care and say, God, the same way that Jacob did. And it says, the angels of God met him. So he's he's being led by, by angels sent from God. He's placing himself under God's care. I love the how visual that is. So you just, before you even get in, really knee deep into this process, you turn all of the process over to God. You turn it all over to God. There's two mentions of this. But it says in verse 9, Then Jacob... Tell me that next word, church. What did he do? Then Jacob 
prayed. Jacob prayed. He says, Lord, I'm placing, I'm placing myself under your care. I know you're, you're my provision. I know all of these things. The second takeaway that I would hope that we would do in just to enter into, in, into this kind of, of what it seems like conflict resolution is pray it through. Before you have to, or, or since that you have to have that, that conversation, pray about it. Pray about, about the whole process. Not just, Lord, how am I going to handle saying it, but how am I going to do it? That you pray it through. Not just pray up to that point. So many times in our life, Christians, what we do is we stop praying. We go through a hardship or we're, we're faced with a hardship and we pray, Lord, please let me face this hardship. But we don't say, Lord, please let me make it through this hardship. And we wonder why we're knee-deep in this hardship and we're having all this struggle upon ourselves. It's because we've stopped relying on God and we've started to rely on us. But Jacob, he prays. And he prays specifically. He says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. He says, God, I know that you sent me on this course of action, that I've placed myself under your care. You told me to leave. I'm making this journey back these 400 miles to go back to the very the, the person who I've considered an enemy for 20 years. And he continues, he says, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have two groups. He's telling God, yes, when I left, I didn't have anything. Now I've got two groups because the birthright and the blessing, he's already started to live in that reality and God is already providing him with with material things and with animals and with, with family and all of these things. And now he's already being provided for the very promises that God had given him. And I love the way that, that Jacob looks back on that time with the Lord and the promise that he got from the Lord. And he says, I'm, not, I'm unworthy of the things that you've already done. I'm unworthy of that. Verse 11, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. If you would, hold your place in Genesis 32. Go to Genesis 28, and I'm going to show you what he's referencing. He's referencing a promise that, actually, that his grandfather, by the name of Abraham, had received. Genesis 28, 13 through 15, is what he's speaking of. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is a a continuation of a promise, and this is a reminder of, to, to Isaac and really to Jacob of saying, hey, I just want you to know, remember the promise that, that was given in Genesis 12 to your grandfather, to what would be Jacob and Esau's grandfather, Abraham? He says, the same promise, I'm continuing this promise. He says, I haven't forgotten you in this. And Jacob 
with, with eloquence at the end of that passage. Back in chapter 32, he says, But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. What is he doing? Jacob is praying through the promises of God. He's praying through the promises. So he's not only, he's, he's, he's placed himself under God's authority and God's control in the whole situation and to resolve the conversation and the conflict, but then also he's praying it through, and he's praying through the very promises of God. What promises has, has God given you? The promises that he's given you is that you, if you're a child of God, that you're forgiven. How many people need forgiveness this morning? Another promise for you is His grace is sufficient for all of your needs. Many Christians in here today, we don't even live with that reality. And, and we, we, we put these things and we, we have those four principles and we heap things upon ourselves. And yet if we would pray it through, pray our life through, and we would trust in the promises of God, and there's so many promises in, in the Word of God, but if we would actually go back to the Word of God and we would claim some of those promises that God has given us, we would look a whole lot less on our circumstances and we'd look a whole lot more at our God. We're not supposed to be, our life is not supposed to be monopolized by our circumstances. We're supposed to be driven by our Lord. We have to pray through the promises of God. We're going to read the rest of the, of the main passage. Verse 13 through 21. It says, he spent the night there, and from what he said with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me, keep some space between the herds. Stop right there. The very thing that was in between the relationship of Jacob and Esau was the birthright and the blessing. So Jacob is saying, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not all about this birthright and blessing. He was living with that blessing. He, he couldn't do anything to keep that blessing and that birthright away. God had given him that through his father and, and that was irrevocable. That was there. It was, it was not going to change. Jacob was, was, absolutely a sinful man but you see the grace of god in that picture that yes he was broken and he was sinful but even through that we see grace shine through because even in that brokenness god stuck with jacob he was the chosen one he would be the very person that the 12 tribes of israel would come through so as this is is mentioned in all these these animals these were all part of the birthright blessing and Jacob is, is in essence, by, by giving of all those things, he says, I, I apologize. I, I know that what I did was wrong, and I'm trying to right the wrong by give some of the things that I have gotten, even through error and sin. And he says, I'm, I'm, I want to I give those things. I, my life isn't all about stuff. Right now, I want us to be Okay. So he said the very thing that stood between us was the birthright and blessing, which was, as he was the, Jacob was the recipient of stuff. And he says, I want to give you some of what God has given me. I don't want this space between you and I. So he does the only thing that he knows to do to try and make it right. Verse 17. He instructed the one in the lead. 
When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? And where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, He's very specific. They belong to your servant Jacob. They are, the, they are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And he is coming behind us. That wording is important. He also instructed the second and third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, Your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps, another key word, he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent spent the night in the camp. The next thing that that I, I want to draw from the text is this. In verse 18, Jacob was very specific on what the people were to say to Esau. He did not want them to get it wrong. And he instructs them. In verse 18, he says, You are to say. Now, what's interesting, we already see where his heart is by his actions. But now he wants the words to match the actions. And for you and I, the the third takeaway is this. It's very plain, very simple. Plan out what you're going to say and do. Just because we put everything in the hands of God and we do and we, we pray through the promises of God, it does not mean that we are not in some way responsible for working that plan out. We plan out what you're going to say and do. Jacob told the people, he wanted all of the people who would, who would face Esau first to say specific things and do specific things. And, and for us this morning, uh, this is interesting. This, uh, I was doing some research, and this is a very a common theme with, within counseling. It says the point of failure for many marriages or relationships is this. And this is, this, is what's, this is a very common sentence that's spoken. I trusted you, but now your words mean nothing because your actions spoke the truth. It says, I trusted you. When you said you were sorry for doing that, I thought that you meant it. But then when you repeated the action over and over and over again, I knew that those words meant nothing. That's why we need to plan out what we are going to say and do. This is the reason why, that we're specific. We, that we're specific. If, if, I have to tell you, I'll just tell you this with humility. Early, early in my marriage... Um, I wasn't really good at communication. So if there was anything that was wrong in the apartments that we lived in, we lived in apartments for the first several years when I was in the Navy, and just kind of transient, I call apartments transient housing, like you're going somewhere else and you kind of put up at the apartment for a while. But I remember being so inept to be able to even have conversation and to communicate effectively that I would just find myself, that, that Marla would say something to me, and I can say this because she's not here, this is awesome, but I, she would say something and like, I would be so inept to be able to handle it, I would just say, I'm sorry. Like, I wasn't sorry. I was trying to just resolve the conflict without having any idea what was actually wrong. But I would just say, I'm sorry. And then she would look at me, you know, and she would look at me 
in, in a little bit of anger, and she should, because I didn't mean it. What I was telling her was this. I just want this to be over with, and if I say that I'm sorry and take some responsibility, I think I'll just push this under the rug and it's going to be fine. Guess what? It wasn't fine. There's a lesson I learned, and this is a lesson that we teach our kids. If you've raised kids, you've taught your kids this. If your kids, um, if, if your kids offend another person, what do you do? You don't just go to your, your child and say, at least you shouldn't do this. Go tell him you're sorry, Billy. Billy just chucked a, a toy truck off his sister's head, okay? Billy needs to know and he needs to say something more than I'm sorry. She's bleeding, right? She's just taking a laceration. And yet, Billy goes up and, you know, and we, as parents, you don't just go to Billy and say, oh, just tell your sister you're sorry. Because if you do that, what's going to happen is Billy's going to go over to his sister and say, sorry, and not mean a word of it. And then when mom and dad leave, and he's going to go over and say, I really wasn't sorry, and next time I want this scratch to be a little deeper. Right? But that's why we go to our kids and we say, if I have offended you or if you have offended me, we need to speak into the exact situation. And we need to make a plan as to how we're going to work that out. We need to, to, to make a plan and not just say, oh, I'm sorry. But we need to say, okay, how am, I gonna, how am I going to ensure that I don't repeat that behavior? How am I, I going to be sure that I'm not going to repeat that behavior? But then also, on the other hand, how am I also going to convey that to you that I'm not going to repeat that behavior? The way you do that is by making a plan about what you're going to say and what you're going to do. All of these things go hand in hand. As we place things under God's care and we pray it through, we pray in, in the confidence of the Lord, not even in the, con- the confidence of ourselves. We trust in the Lord. We lean not on our own understanding. We acknowledge Him. Next thing, I, and this is, I, I've drawn your attention to this. This is all the way through this text. And, and for you and I, this is, this is critical as well. Jacob has chosen the word servant before his name and Lord before Esau's name. Now, in this setting, Jacob was the recipient of the birthright and blessing. Jacob says, I'm, 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 I'm lowering myself right now. I'm gaining a posture of humility before you. I'm gaining a posture of humility. He's lowering himself. And he recognizes the very thing that stood as a chasm in their relationship. And the very thing that that caused Jacob to be fearful of his life. The very thing that drove Jacob to be 400 miles away and to be separated for 20 years. 20 years. And he says, I don't want this to create distance anymore. And he says, my Lord Esau. And he says, your servant Jacob. So Jacob, in essence shows himself as being subservient. As a matter of fact, in, in the chapter right after this, when this is actually fleshed out, Jacob goes before Esau and, and he bows down before him seven times. Just to, just to prove that point, that you gain a posture of humility. Posture of humility. Matthew, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew five twenty five, he tells us, to settle matters quickly. Settle matters quickly. Just take, take care of things. 
Don't let things spiral and get out of control. If, if we were to follow the guidelines for this talk this morning, I know, I know that, that you and I would have much better relationships. Our marriages would be more sound. We would raise more spiritually grounded kids. We would actually have friends. One of the biggest problems in our culture today is people are isolated from other, from other folks and they don't have quality friendships. It's because we're, we are so entrenched in those four principles that, that the counselor that we talked about before, that whether we're, we're, we, we confront, confront things um, inappropriately or we, we bury ourselves in situations or we hide or we just cover ourselves with all of that guilt and shame. And also, with, with the wording, very clear in the Word of God this morning, and we see a picture of this in verse 20. As this, this is being repeated. And he says, And be sure to say, Your servant Jacob. So as these, Greek, these, these groups are, are, are going out, and they're, they're meeting Esau, as these groups are going out, Jacob says, Make sure that you tell them where you're coming from. Another thing this morning is make it, personal and be specific make it personal jacob is 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 laying it out very clearly and he says you are you are speaking on my behalf i accept responsibility by giving of the animals jacob is saying i take responsibility by, by the wording of the, the servant and Lord wording, he says, I'm taking responsibility. I'm being humble in this. And he's making it personal. He says, this is, this is all because of, of what I've done. Jacob says, and he says, now this is Jacob's group, his family, families divided into two groups, now approaching Esau. So he's making it personal. He's making it specific. If... If you were to go to the doctor, okay, if you were to go to the doctor and say you went to the doctor for a sinus infection, very common here in middle Georgia. Um, we don't have a lot of much around here, but we have a lot of allergies, so we have that going for us. But say you go to the doctor for a sinus infection and you go to your family practitioner and, you know, you go in and, and you see that he's maybe just a little bit flippant and he's thinking about something else or, you know, you're the last appointment for the day and he's got plans for the night and you go into the doctor and, and you say, Doc, I've got, I think I have a sinus infection. And if he were to look at you, almost with a blank stare, and say, well, I need to refer you to a podiatrist. What would you say to the doctor? A doc, I think you broke off a Q-tip in your ear. Something's wrong here, right? Or say this, if you were to go to the doctor and I just had poison ivy recently, and thankfully I don't anymore, but I just had poison ivy, and if you were to go with a severe allergy, uh, allergic reaction to poison ivy to your family practitioner, you would hope that he would give you some medicine for that, but if he prescribed Icy Hot and he says, just everywhere it itches, just put that Icy Hot on your scab, what are you going to say? Uh, doc, thank you. Can you refer me to another quality doctor? Because apparently this one isn't working out too well. You see, when, when we have conflict with other people, they want us to put the medicine in the right place. They want us to put the medicine in the right place. They want us, and, and we need to make it personal and to be specific. 
If, if you, have, or rather, if I've offended you, and I just say, man, I'm just really sorry for what I did. It's not going to mean as much as going through the line and saying, okay, I've, I have offended you, and I know that I said this, and I shouldn't have said this. I did that, and I should not have done that. I was very self-centered in this. I apologize. Do you forgive me? That means a whole lot more than those two words. I'm sorry. Doesn't it? When you're specific and you speak to the actual problem that existed, rather than saying, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, you may be taking responsibility, but there's no assurance that, that you're sorry for anything specifically. People want and need, when you have conflict, they need the medicine in the right place. It's like, it's like this. If you... I'm going to speak into, uh, into something now. This is a, a, a hot, hot button. This is what we really need. This is what we really need. If we were to go through and, and we, were to, uh, we were to talk about politicians, we would all have a lot to talk about. We would probably be divided... Um, on, on many of the things in a group like this, the things that we believe and the way things get done. But I bet we all agree on one thing. If no matter who it is, if it's, if it's a Bush or an Obama or if it's a Clinton or if it's Reagan, whoever the case may be, whoever you line yourself up with, the very problem with politicians is not the fact that they've done something wrong, is that they have not taken responsibility for the wrong that they've done. Is that true? Like, it isn't, you know what, I know that they're fallible. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you align, what, what party you're with, or if you're not with the party, if you're half in this party, half in that party, whatever the case may be. All of them are fallible. All we want as people is for somebody to say, I am sorry. What I did was wrong. I learned from my mistake, and I will not repeat it. And the very thing that eats at us when it comes to politics, eats at me, is that no one actually takes responsibility for things that they've done wrong. And yet, shouldn't Christians be held to the same standard that we hold a politician to? That we should go through and not just not take responsibility. And, you know, just because it's an awkward or difficult conversation doesn't mean that we need to push back and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. They did me wrong. They did me wrong. I am creating distance. I cannot even talk to that person anymore. I am over them. I can't believe what she said. I can't believe what he said. That puts the the focus on us, and there's no focus on the Lord at all. And yet, the same standard that that all of us would agree that we need to put on a politician, we don't put on ourselves. As a matter of fact, I'll be honest with you, men are the worst at this. Because when when we have conflict, a lot of times... myself included, we don't know how to handle that conflict. So what we'll try and do is we'll go with the fox principle and we'll try and go hide in a hole somewhere and we'll bury ourselves in a hobby and, you know, it's, it's hunting season now and then I've got to get ready for fishing season and thankfully, you know, it's football season now and I've got something to do for a few months and we try and bury ourselves in all of these peripheral things instead of confronting the very thing that sits between our relationship. We bury it thinking it's going to go away. Last thing, I drew your attention to this. At the end of verse 20. 
It says this. I'll just read all of verse 20. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, key word, perhaps he will receive me. He says, perhaps. Jacob is not sure what the result's going to be. He just says, perhaps. It could go either way. And for us, and even when we have this difficult conversation and how to admit that we're wrong and how to right the wrong, it does not mean that it's necessarily going to be worked out just when you speak it. So we need to prepare ourselves for the result. We need to prepare ourselves for the result. And it could go either way. We have to know that coming, coming out of the gate. Look at Jacob. He, he, he says he's done everything he can do. He's talked about it. He's prayed about it. He's put it under God's care. He's gained a, position, a, a, a posture of humility before his brother. He's came a long distance to, to make it right with his family again. Esau met him halfway. And he says, I don't know how this is going to go. As a matter of fact, I would say he's pretty fearful. He splits his family into two groups because he thinks, well, if Esau attacks one group, and maybe the other one will be able to get away. He says this could go either way. For you and I this morning, just because we know that we have to have a difficult conversation doesn't mean that it's, it's always going to work out immediately the way that we want it to. And we need to prepare ourselves for the result. That doesn't mean that we need to be defensive. That just means that sometimes there are wounds and hurts that cut so deeply that it takes a long time to heal. And I would say this. I've been wrestling with, with saying this all week long. I've been wrestling with this. But I know I need to say it. If you have been abused, if you have been abused, I'm sorry will not work. If you have been abused in sexually, physically, emotionally, whatever the case may be, if you have been abused... I'm sorry, in words, is never enough. Never enough. And you need to, at that time, you need to draw back from that person. Remove yourself from that person. I'm speaking very, very clearly for someone this morning. I don't know who it is. But you need to step back away from that relationship. You need to seek wise counsel from other people ever before you go back into that into that abusive relationship. And if that person has hurt you, do not accept I'm sorry without seeing counseling, without seeking wise counsel of other people, and without seeing significant changes in their life. Because abuse is a pattern that is not remedied with two words. If you're at work, and I've seen this, I've I've fallen victim to this, if you're at work and you see somebody doing things and stealing from work, I'm sorry when they get caught is not enough. They need to be held accountable for that. If not, you're complicit in their error. If they have done something wrong, if they have broken a crime, I'm sorry is not enough. You need to, you need to have who, the company representative, human resources, whoever the case may be, to go to them and say, what you did was wrong. I'm sorry is not enough. Because I believe, and I've seen this, and I've talked to people, and I've seen the consequences of this, if they're not really drawn to the forefront and not held responsible for their actions, that will be repeated. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you are compelled to more than the world's standard. 
If it's a crime, it's wrong. But just kind of making this clear, and this is going to wrap it up. There's some things that aren't sins. There's some times that, that we do things wrong, for instance. Somebody gets something down, gets a plate down from the cabinet. And they're going to get a plate down and accidentally drops another plate. Obviously, that's not a sin. They just drop the plate. The standard that you hold other people to when they fail should not all be taken as if it is a sin. There are consequences for actions. If somebody has done something petty, it doesn't, reserve, it doesn't deserve the third degree. If somebody has sinned, that is a whole different ball game. If somebody has sinned against you, like literally sinned against you, then that needs to be held differently than just a petty thing. And much in line with what we talked about last week from Matthew 18, there are, there are degrees in communication and relationships that need to be resolved in, in sometimes in the most minuscule ways. And what is so apropos to our text this morning is the damage that happens with time and separation. And if we follow the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 and he says, settle matters quickly. Settle matters quickly. Think back to a relationship that, that you have had and think if and maybe there's, there's some conflict in there that has not been resolved. All it does is lead you to speculation and I wonder about this and I'm, I'm challenged with this. But yet if you would have confronted it right out of the gate, and done what Jesus has told us to do to settle matters quickly, it wouldn't have grown out of control. And I think for us as Christians, and I see this, and I believe this as Christians, we have a wonderful gift of grace that we've received. And it's the same gift that we need to extend to other people. It doesn't mean that the conversation is going to be easy but it is necessary. If you've offended somebody this morning, or if somebody's offended you, why don't you meet them halfway? Why don't you, why don't you take these, these six principles, unpack them in your life, and that, whatever that is, and, and, and by me speaking these things, you have names, and you have, and probably just names and people and situations that are drawn right on the forefront of your mind. How awesome would it be for you to be reconciled with that person? But if they're not taking any steps, doesn't that mean that you probably should? Because if they just came into your mind, that's the Holy Spirit telling you, settle matters quickly. Mm-hmm.